0: All right, so we're going to be back in Genesis chapter 37. We didn't actually read it last week. We just kind of gave an overview of Joseph's life, of Joseph's story. So this week, we're going to be back in Genesis 37 for that particular chapter. But again, my text is not found in Genesis 37. My text is found in Genesis chapter 50, at the end of the book of Genesis and at the end of the story of Joseph, at the end of the, uh, at the kind of conclusion of his life, He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. As for you, speaking to his brothers, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So my goal today, my goal for this sermon is twofold. One, I want us to gain a greater understanding of God's sovereignty. I want us to gain a greater understanding of how God works in the lives of his people. And two that that this kind of a revelation of God's sovereignty and how he works in our lives, that this revelation would help us to understand our own lives better, that it would help us to understand our own stories better. All right, so remember the purpose of all of scripture is to reveal Christ to us. It's to point us to his gospel of grace. So instead of looking at Joseph, instead of looking at the story of Joseph, what we're actually going to be doing, what we want to do, is we want to look with Joseph. We want to look where the story of Joseph points us. We're going to look at the story, but I mean, you know what I'm saying? We want to look where the story is pointing us. So we want to look to Christ because the story points us to Christ. We want to look to the gospel of grace because the story points us to the work of Christ in the gospel of grace. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, would you grant us eyes to see you for who you really are? Lord, help us to intimately know you as sovereign and good. Please help us to know the ways you work in our lives and in our stories and in your world. As we open up the story of Joseph, God, would you open up our hearts? Would you remove the attitudes, the high thoughts, the emotional blockades that we have erected that attempt to reduce you down to a safe and sterile God of our own imagination? Be known to us today for who you really are. Reveal to us today that your providence in our lives comes to us through the good and the evil. Evil through the sweet and through the bitter. In Jesus' name we ask these things, amen. All right, so I gave you the overview last week of uh, the story of Joseph, so I hope you remember that. If you're not familiar with it, then I would encourage you sometime to go and read from Genesis 37 to the end of the book, really. You can just read the story of Joseph and take it all in as a whole. At the conclusion of the story of Joseph, um, what we see is something really fascinating. So remember, Joseph was a uh, was a man who was greatly wronged by his family, by his brothers. They sold, they took him, they stripped him of his robe, of his clothes. They threw him in a pit, and they um, they conspired to kill him. But really, they uh, he was spared that, and they instead sold him into slavery into Egypt. 17 years old, sold into slavery. At the end of Joseph's story, at the end of his life, instead of Joseph, who has risen to power, who has risen to this place of authority, had every ability to just punish his brothers and his family. Instead of that, we see Joseph forgive them. We see Joseph full of love for them. We see him um, save their life instead of condemn them and and take their life. In Genesis 45, verse 8, Joseph says to his brothers, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Now, when we look at the story of Joseph, of course, of, of course, it was them who sent Joseph to Egypt. They sold him into slavery. But Joseph is saying, there's something greater going on here. There's something greater going on here. It wasn't you who sent me here. This wasn't your plan. This was God's plan. God sent me here. So this is why um, I chose the text I did in Genesis 50. God meant it. For good, and so as we get into the story of Joseph, and as as we get into particularly this chapter, which is gruesome. I mean, this is where his brothers take him and strip him and throw him in a pit and sell him into slavery. As as we get into this chapter, particularly, we we want to keep that in mind, Genesis fifty in mind, and mine. And, the, and that verse I told you last week. There, there's the verb meant. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. That's the word. Hashev. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but it's something like that. It's the Hebrew word hashev. And it literally means, the word literally means to weave or to braid, to weave or to braid. So um, one theologian puts it this way. He says this, this is not a verb of accidental occurrence. This is a verb of deliberate intention and imagination. This is not a verb of accidental occurrences. is a verb of deliberate intention and imagination. So, so keep that in mind. This is not God um, passively allowing this thing to happen and then saying, how can I go back and how can I go behind these wicked men and fix it? This is not some God who is passively reacting. This is a God who is intentionally, intentionally weaving these events to this glorious culmination hashev pictures the sovereign god orchestrating every meticulous detail every single thread of his glorious tapestry of redemption being woven together masterfully and intentionally so as we go through the story of joseph and the rest of the book of genesis hashev must be at the forefront of our minds. Hashev must be at the forefront of our minds. That that God is intentionally working. We see God's hand in his plan in all of the mess. In all the evil working, God is still weaving something beautiful. He, even when we can't see the beauty, when we can't make out the beauty, the glory, when we can't see the goodness, we can trust that God is weaving something glorious, something beautiful. So, let's read Genesis chapter 37. Follow along with me. This is the word of the Lord. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpha. His father's wives and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with you, with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the Valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem and a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, "This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not." And he identified it and said, "It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces." the word of the Lord. So, remember, I want to aim in two areas, two things. I want um, a greater understanding of God's sovereignty and how he works and that this understanding would help us to read, to understand our stories, our lives more clearly. So, as we get into this chapter, remember Hashev, as, as for you, you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. And I want to um, I want to, I want us to notice particularly how God is using what would appear to be coincidences. And um, so that's one thing, how God is using what appears to be coincidences. And two, that how, uh, how God is using people's sins and evil God is weaving this story. He's weaving these events together to something glorious. What appears to be coincidences are all precisely part of the plan. So even sins and evil, these tools that these brothers meant for evil and for Joseph's destruction are being wielded by a good God, a merciful God a merciful craftsman who is building something glorious. Joseph has two dreams. Uh, He dreams, uh, both of his dreams are about humiliation and exaltation. He dreams that these brothers, his family will be humiliated, will be humbled, will be brought low and that he will be exalted. He dreams about sheaves, and he dreams about heavenly bodies. Sheaves, probably like wheat or some something like that, and heavenly bodies, sun, moon, stars. And we're told explicitly here that these images represent people, that they represent Jacob's family. Um, now, Joseph's dreams... <laughs> get three responses, Joseph's response, Joseph's brother's response, and Jacob's response. Um, I want to look at Joseph's response first. From the text, uh, we can kind of see, it's not very obvious, but we can kind of pick up on this hint that maybe Joseph, as a 17-year-old boy, is either like chronically insensitive and a little bit dense Or he is a little bit proud or presumptuous. It's not very, I mean, that's not a stretch to believe a 17-year-old would be one of those things, I don't think. Um, So either way, looking at Joseph's response to the dreams, he tells his brothers, he tells his family, they hate him, uh, his brothers hate him for it. My question is, do you think that Joseph knew how it was God would make these dreams a reality. You know, as he gets these dreams and maybe, maybe he's just insensitive and he just tells his brothers and, you know, he's not real, picking up on their animosity or maybe he's a little bit arrogant and proud and that's why his father, who loves him the most, rebukes him perhaps. I don't know. Either way, maybe none of those things. But do you think Joseph, when he has these dreams, realizes how God is going to bring these dreams about Probably not. I, Joseph is, if we want to think of it this way, Joseph is seeing the mountaintop, but he's failing to recognize, he's failing to see that before the mountaintop comes a deep valley. When we recognize the mountaintop without seeing the valley, we're going to be prone to be arrogant or prideful and we want to guard against that. One way to guard against that is to recognize that before glory, there's always humiliation. Before the mountaintop, you're, you always have a deep valley. Okay, then you have Joseph's brothers. Um, maybe because the messenger, you know, maybe because it's their little brother, maybe because it's, uh, maybe it's because he's so young, maybe he is arrogant Maybe he's insensitive. Maybe it's because he's just so familiar. Whatever it is, they hear this dream. They hear this God given dream and they dismiss Joseph. They dismiss his dreams just outright. They do not believe. They do not believe. They don't heed God's revealed truth. So they're jealous of Joseph, we're told. And three times in the chapter, we're told that they, um, that they hate him. That hate is in their heart toward their brother. In verse four, we see that they, they couldn't even speak peace to him. In, in other words, it, what that means is in their, in their culture, the etiquette, uh, the greeting of peace. They couldn't even greet their brother with peace. And then finally, we have Jacob. Jacob listens to his favored son and he rebukes him. And yet, even though he listens and he rebukes him for whatever reason he rebukes him, but we see Jacob does not dismiss the dreams like his brothers did. Jacob does not make the same mistakes that his sons made. He listens to the dream and it it says he... uh, he, you know, tucked it away in his mind. The prophetic dreams that God gives to Joseph are a hope for Joseph. They're, I mean, we gotta see, we have to understand how unbelievable the dreams are. Just the older does not bow to younger, just does not happen, especially father to son. The dreams are unbelievable, but we gotta understand that for Joseph, these are God-given dreams and they are meant to be a Hope for him, an anchor for his faith. An anchor for his faith. And we think of his, you know, what's coming down Joseph's uh, road. You know why he needs an anchor for his faith. So this hope reveals God's sovereign purpose. A hope that a good God, Joseph receives a hope that a good God is working Sovereignly, he's working and he's weaving a good plan, exaltation, glory. So if we jump further ahead, Joseph's dreams all come true. They, they all come to pass. And it's not just in the single gesture. So remember, Joseph rises to power in Egypt and his brothers come to him for food. And when they come to him, not knowing it's Joseph, they bow down to him. So it's, they come to pass in that way, but it's not just that way. His dream, his dream that Joseph has of exaltation above his brothers comes to pass in more than just that. In fact, we know that Joseph received the inheritance. Joseph received the inheritance of the firstborn, the double portion. So in that culture, um, the firstborn would receive a double portion of the inheritance. If there were three sons, the inheritance would be divided four ways and the, and the firstborn would receive two portions instead of one portion. Joseph received that double portion. He received the blessing of the firstborn. He was exalted over his brothers. And not only that, but J- uh, Joseph's two sons that he has while in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh, are adopted by Jacob and elevated also to the, to the uh, same status as Jacob's other sons. And they're also given a blessing. So in that way, jo- Joseph is also blessed. Um, in that culture, this is also very backwards. It's so upside down. The older never bowed to the younger. The younger did not receive what belonged to the older. And yet here we are. And I would say, here we are again. We've, we've been going through Genesis for a long time, but I hope you remember, I hope you remember that this is not the way it's supposed to be. The older is not supposed to bow to the younger. And yet, God keeps doing it this way. Here we are again. So through Joseph's dreams, he, God is telling his people that the fallen world is going to be turned upside down. That the broken world is going to be made right again. So Joseph isn't the point of Joseph's story. Jesus is the point of Joseph's story. Joseph is here to remind us that one day God would send another prince, a better prince who would likewise be rejected by his brothers who would be thrown into a pit, but it would be a far deeper pit. There would be another prince coming. Another savior is coming. All right. So, Joseph's brothers are off taking care of their father's flock. They're taking care of the um, family business, and Joseph is at home, and he's sent to look after the uh, look after the brothers and bring a report back to Jacob. And he obediently goes. He says, "Here I am." And when he gets to Shechem, his brothers are not there, and there just so happens to be a man. The way that the text put it, he's wandering in the field. Joseph, I mean, Jake, yeah, yeah, Joseph. Joseph is wandering the field and there just so happens to be a man. Hey, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. You know, I just so happened to overhear they were going to Dothan. And so Joseph goes to Dothan. And as his brothers see him coming, they conspire to murder him. They despise him, but I want you to notice what they say in verses 19 and 20. They say, here comes this dreamer. Here comes this dreamer. And they say, let us kill him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. Here comes this dreamer. Let's kill, th- let's kill this dreamer and let's see what becomes of his dreams. So in reality they're not just despising Joseph. Who are they despising? They're despising God. Let's see what becomes of these dreams of Josephs. Let's kill him. In other words, let's thwart the plan of God. But they couldn't do it. Thank thanks be to God. They're despising Joseph, yes, but they are rebelling against God, the dream giver. They're rebelling against God who, is, who has given Joseph this dream. Now, to their credit, maybe they didn't believe Joseph that they came from God. But the fact of the matter is, and this is something that we need to really pay attention to. The fact of the matter is, whether they believed that dream came from God or not that Joseph had, whether they believed it or not, it didn't matter because it was true. And so when they rejected that dream, when they rejected Joseph, they were rejecting God. They were rebelling against God. Uh, Bitterness, jealousy, envy, and hatred is what we see in his brothers. And, and, those things, bitterness, jealousy, envy, and hatred, they will always bear themselves out. They will always bear themselves out. So if you have bitterness and jealousy and envy and hatred, that is not something that you can keep tucked away in your heart and keep it hidden and secret and keep it um, tame. We This summer we went to St. Louis and I took my kids to the zoo. And at the St. Louis Zoo, which is in a, which is a great zoo, they have a new polar bear exhibit. And we learned while we were looking at this massive bear that when polar bears are born, they weigh like one to two pounds. By the time they're eight months old, they weigh a hundred pounds. They're born weighing one to two pounds and by the time they're eight months old, think of your child grew like that. I mean it's just incredible. Adult male polar bears can get up to like fifteen hundred pounds. I think the largest one's over two thousand pounds. It's incredible. These things are massive. We we may think that our jealousy and that our envy, our bitterness, our hatred, our anger, we may think that they are harmless. That we can just keep them in this safe little place in our heart. That we can keep them all under control. That they're not a threat to us, to our safety, and to the, to the people around us. Maybe they're just one or two pound cubs in your heart. But before you know it, these things will break out of whatever cage you think they're locked up in. And they'll consume you is what we see with Joseph's brothers. I mean, think of this. I mean, if you have brothers, think of this. If you have, you know, siblings, think of this. They take him, they strip him, they throw him in a pit, they sell him into slavery. They hated him so much they were going to kill him. Jealousy, bitterness, envy, hatred, these things are not sins only of the past. These are things that we have to deal with right now in our own hearts. Do you have jealousy right now, bitterness, Envy, hatred, anger. If you do, deal with it. You say, how do I deal with it? Repent. I am repenting. I have repented. Then keep repenting. And this is the good news for you, Christian. Your repenting is, you you stink at repenting. But it's okay because there is one who makes intercession for you. His name is Jesus. (laughs) He even helps you repent. He even does the praying for you. Repent, give it to God. You say, I have given it to God and here I find it again. Then give it again. Give it as many times as you find it creeping up in your heart, bitterness, hatred, jealousy. Give it to God because if you don't, it will consume you. Joseph here is a 17-year-old young man, and these are his brothers. They seize him, they strip him, they throw him into a pit, and they leave him for dead. And, and that is their idea of mercy. We could have just killed you, but instead we'll do this. So Reuben convinces them, at least for now, not to shed his blood with their hands, he says. And in utter callousness, they sit down to eat while their brother brother begs for mercy. Can you imagine the intense emotions as he cried out in that pit? You think he thought of his dreams then in those moments? So for whatever reason, Reuben must have been preoccupied. Reuben's the guy who saved him and got him thrown into a pit instead of Killed right there. He must have been preoccupied because as they're sitting there eating, a band of Midianite slave traders passes by. And Judah, his brother Judah, like a scrupulous Pharisee, you can hear just the same words and attitude that we see later in the Pharisees with Jesus. Like a scrupulous Pharisee, he says, Well, Joseph is our brother, he is our own flesh. Uh, we shouldn't kill him. That would be wrong, apparently, Judas thinking. We shouldn't kill him. So, um, and besides, we won't get anything for that. Let's sell him instead and get a profit. So he sells him, sells Joseph to the slave traders. What happens next is is irony. And, and I hope you can see it. So if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob is uh, Jacob's brother Esau is the favored one. And Jacob, to get the blessing, takes his brother's clothes and he takes a goat and he deceives his father. Well, here we see Jacob deceived with the favored brother's clothes and a goat. And of course, there's a difference. The, Jacob was deceiving righteously and, and uh, Joseph's brothers are being wicked. But it's a, it's a ironic that God does this thing. He does this thing. These cycles, and and, jo- and Jacob is deceived the same way he was deceiving. So they soil Joseph's robe with the goat's blood, and they make their father believe he was torn to pieces by a wild animal. But th- at the end of the chapter, we are given a glimmer of hope. We're given a glimmer of hope. Joseph, uh, Moses says, "Meanwhile, meanwhile in Egypt, meanwhile the Midianite slave traders sell Joseph." to a pretty high up guy, Potiphar. All right, so I want you to notice, as we went through that, that chapter, notice, and you may not believe me, you can go back through later, but notice that the author, nowhere in this chapter specifically mentions God. Nowhere. Can you imagine how Joseph must have felt alone in the bottom of that pit? how he must have felt on the road to Egypt as a slave. And yet we know that God, we know that God is working and weaving. He takes the bitter and the sweet and he's making something glorious. He takes the good and the evil and he's making something glorious. So I want you to think about the coincidences as well. We see Jacob happens to send Joseph whose brothers happened to not be where they were supposed to be while a man happened to be there who just so happened to know where the brothers went. And when um, Joseph is going to be killed, Reuben happens to be there to save him. But then when he's going to be sold as a slave, Reuben happens to be gone, occupied, busy, And of course, these aren't coincidences at all. They're all intended by God. They're all meticulously planned and willed by God, including Joseph's guilty brother's murderous actions. You see, God is, is governing even those to work this salvation. And the truth is this. If any one of those things did not happen, everybody dies. If any of those coincidences, if any of that evil, wicked in the brothers does not happen, everybody dies. Now, if you remember going through the whole story, Joseph goes to Egypt. He interprets Pharaoh's dream. There's a famine coming that Joseph is put in charge of mounting up the food supply and saves the world, the Bible says. He saves Egypt and he saves his family. If Joseph doesn't go to Egypt, everybody dies. How did Joseph get to Egypt? Through hell. It was God's will. It was God's plan. It's interesting, Dothan, um, where Joseph is thrown into the pit, Dothan is where another child of God is in need of salvation. And he cries out, the prophet. And he cries out to God in Dothan, the prophet Elijah cries out, and God sends chariots of fire to save him. But here Joseph is in Dothan, crying out, and what does he get? Silence. Silence. And yet it is in this silence God is no less active. God is no less active. He is mercifully working salvation through chariots of fire for Elijah. And he's mercifully working salvation for Joseph by violently sending him to Egypt. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around. But we see the same thing in the New Testament. We see the same thing when, when it's the wise mercy of God to free Peter and Paul from prison through, through miraculous means, angels and earthquakes. And it is the wise mercy of God to keep, Joseph, uh, to keep John the Baptist securely locked in prison until what? until his head comes off. Which one was the mercy of God? Which one was the plan of God, the wisdom of God? Well, they both were. One pastor puts it this way, God's wise, redeeming love is completely compatible with terrible things happening in the lives of those he loves. God's wise, redeeming love for you is compatible with terrible disappointments and terrible things happening to you. so it may seem oftentimes that God is not answering your prayers. He isn't doing anything in your life at all. It may seem that God is silent and he may be silent. You may feel like Joseph at the bottom of the pit, rejected, betrayed, abandoned, but God is working. He's working in good and sweet and bitter and evil. He works in the blessing and he works in the curse. He works in the blessing and he works in the curse. In fact, the curse becomes the cure. Jo- the afflictions work for our glory. So Joseph points us to Christ. But he also points us to the gospel. He points us to Christ's work, which means that Joseph also is a picture of us. Joseph points us to Christ and he pictures Christ in a lot of ways, but at the same time, Joseph in his weakness pictures us. In his weakness, in his brokenness, he pictures us. Just like Joseph, we have a father who loves us, who who has clothed us in a robe we don't deserve. Just like Joseph, we have a hope that we can count on, a hope that is sure, who is Christ, who will not disappoint. But just like Joseph, before we get to the mountain, we have to go through the valley. When it seems like God is not answering your prayers, what He's really doing is, is He's working in your life and He's answering you in ways that you just don't understand. When it seems like God is not answering your prayers, He is working in your life and he's answering you in ways that you just don't understand. He's answering you in the ways that you would be asking for if you knew everything he knows. He's answering you in the ways that you would completely understand if you knew everything he knew. If you saw everything he saw. But you don't. I don't. And so we trust God. We trust God that he's working for the good and for his glory even when he is silent. We trust him because he is our father and he is the one who turns all deaths into glorious resurrections. So as for you, you meant evil against me but God meant it for good. A man named Skip Moen, he writes this. He says, Joseph tells us plainly, you meant evil against me, but the true meaning of these evil acts did not lie under the authority of the perpetrators. God took their evil and he turned it to his good. The events did not change. God didn't miraculously alter Joseph's slavery or his imprisonment. He just made something else happen through it. Something that the perpetrators could never have anticipated. God doesn't need to alter events in order to bring about his purposes. His is a much more glorious plan. He takes what others plan for evil and uses it to bring about good. He doesn't erase the evil, he transforms it. He does not erase the evil, he transforms it. The curse becomes the cure. So remember, the, jo- the story of Joseph is, is pointing us to Christ. Do you see it? Can you see the cross? When I say the curse becomes the cure, can you see the cross? The curse, the evil, the sin, the heinous crime becomes for us the cure. Salvation. I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones, who wrote the Jesus Storybook Bible, I love the way she makes the connection from Joseph to Christ. She says this, just like Joseph, his heart would break. He would leave his home and father. His brothers would hate him and want him dead. Just like Joseph, he would be sold for silver pieces. He would be punished even though he had done nothing wrong. But just like Joseph, God would use everything that happened, even the bad things, even the sinful actions of men to do something good to save his people. Although Joseph's sufferings point us to Christ and foreshadow our Messiah's sufferings, we have to keep in mind, and and I don't think this is hard for us, Jesus suffered infinitely more infinitely more than Joseph. He was not only stripped of a robe, he was stripped of his father's love. He was, he, um, he suffered and died to save you. He was stripped of his father's love for you, for me. He became sin for us to bear the wrath of God for us. He died so that in him we could die. You see, before we get to the mountaintop, we've got to go through the valley. He died so we could make it through that valley and not die in that valley. He died so we could die and come back from that grave new he died so we can die and he lives so we can live. Thanks be to God. One of the things that strikes me most about Joseph's story is that if Joseph stays buried in the pit, our hope for a Messiah stays buried with him. If Joseph stays buried in the pit, our hope for a Messiah stays buried with him. If Joseph doesn't make it to Egypt, God's people perish in the promised land. If Joseph doesn't get to Egypt as a slave, God's people perish free in the promised land. If Joseph is left alone by God to live comfortably as the favorite child for the rest of his life, avoiding years and years of inexplicable suffering and misery. The line that our Messiah comes from, our Jesus, doesn't happen. His people die. It's so easy for me to look at my own problems and think, rack my brain what could the point of this be? I can't think of something. Well, it must be useless. must be meaningless. Think of this. Even at the end of Joseph's life, he still did not see the entire picture. He saw his family. He saw his salvation. He saw the purpose of God in sending him to Egypt to save his family. But even at that, he didn't see the whole picture he didn't see the whole picture that from his brother would come the messiah and yet he knew that they were not meaningless he was not bitter he was not angry he was not resentful he was not he it was not those things toward god and he was not those things toward his family he was full of love because he believed god And there's no doubt in my mind that we'll come to the end of our troubles and to the end of our stories, to the end of our lives with unanswered questions. If we think that all of our questions are going to be answered on this side, we're fooling ourselves. We're going to come to the end of our stories, our circumstances, our lives, or our troubles with unanswered questions. What's the point? We will. But I want you to know this, that when hope finally gives birth, when hope, you see, we hope just like a woman is pregnant. We hope for what we have not yet obtained. If we had obtained it, why would we hope for it? We have it. When hope finally gives birth, know that we will see the final glorious portrait when we get to the other side of this tapestry, when we get to the other side of the curtain, when we cross the great sea one day, we'll see a glorious picture. We'll see the glorious reality that all of our troubles, that every tear was worth it all, like the song we sing. Why? How will we know that? Because we will know glory like we've never known before. Like we can never know on this side. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Would you stand and let's pray. Heavenly Father, these truths may come easy enough to our minds, but we have to have them set deep in our hearts. Lord, we may look at these stories and we may look at all this information and we say, okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But God, we have to have these truths in our bones, in our hearts. That when we cut, when we are cut, we bleed these truths. God, let your truth of your loving sovereignty take root in our heart. Let it expel every root of bitterness, jealousy, envy, hatred, anger. Let it guard us and keep us even when we are in the pit. Let the comfort of your wise mercy saturate every piece of our heart that it would drive out all bitterness and jealousy and envy and hate. God, make us to trust you Keep us faithful for your glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. So my charge to you this morning is this. Believe in the God of the Bible, who is God all the way up, all the way down, and all the way across. Believe in the God who works in the light and in the dark, in the good and in the calamity, in the evil, in the sweet and in the bitter. Believe the God who works all things for the good of those who love him. Believe the God who works all things for his glory and let this belief purge your heart of bitterness and jealousy and envy and hatred. Let it purge your heart. Believe the God of loving sovereignty and wise mercy. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen.